Remember, no one, and I mean no one, comes into our house and pushes us around. Let's get him. Ah! Stop, drop, shut him down, there go stocks. Whoa, yo, make it four weeks in a row. January starts on a roll. Take this train, don't pay the toll. Two weeks into the Super Bowl. Oh, Rihanna at the half, solid gold. Crypto bros feeling bold. Oh no, how's this gonna go? Whoa, GDP getting weak and slow. Yo, Fed's about to hike, don't you know? Job cuts starting to grow. No, earnings not so bad. So we gotta keep that hustle and flow. Joe, follow the trends and momentum. Find your inner sanctum. If you see Ray Dalio, you can thank him. Forest principles, so biblical. Life lessons, progressions, obsessions with making you your best you. Find the path to be your best. We're gonna lay down those tracks on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. That breeze at our back, that's momentum. Stocks grinded higher again last week, shaking off shaky earnings and tepid economic news to make it four straight weeks of gains for the major market averages. For the month, the Dow is up 2.5%, the S&P is up 6%, and the Nasdaq up 11%. Right Thanks, Elwood. Now, we are way too early to start counting our money at the table, and Kenny Rogers says we should never do that anyway, but keep the January effect in mind, as our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group keeps telling us, when stocks are up in January, the rest of the year is higher 86% of the time and up 11.9% on average. A big January, 5% or more, is even better, up 14.2% on average and up 85.7% of the time. Does that mean it's going to happen this year? No one knows. It didn't happen last year, of course, but coming out of a bear market, the S&P 500 rises between 25% and 35% over the next 12 months on average. Call it a reversion to the mean or call it a new bull market, but don't ignore the trends. What was resistance has turned into support for the major market averages. Bottoms are forming, at least for now. Still, there are many uncertainties out there, and the fourth quarter reading on GDP pointed out just a few. While the U.S. economy grew at a 2.9% annual pace last quarter, that was down from 3.5% in the third quarter. For the full year, the U.S. economy grew at a 2.1% annual pace. Not too hot, but definitely cooling though still growing, maybe a little Goldilocksy. Consumer spending was the fuel in the economy's tank as we keep spending despite red-hot inflation. But spending did cool in the fourth quarter just as inventories continue to grow among businesses and exports slowed. If the next few months continue to see slowing spending, excess inventories, and more layoffs, that soft landing many investors are hoping for might not feel so soft. We'll get another rate hike this week by the Fed, which will likely be one quarter of a percent according to the CME FedWatch tool, and probably another quarter of a percent in late March, and maybe that'll be that for the year. The question is, how much will all these rate hikes slow the economy while bringing down inflation to the Fed's target of around 2%? If you look at the rally in risk assets since the beginning of the year, a lot of investors don't seem to think it'll be too bad. Is this another case of irrational exuberance, or do they really see the light at the end of the tunnel? We shall see, which leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, 
We've gone from bad news in the economy is good news for the stock market to bad news for the economy is now bad news for the stock market. Even though stocks have rebounded in January, the latest batch of economic reports were not met with the same kind of enthusiasm in the stock market as they were last year. Last year, every sour report on the economy had a lot of investors hoping and betting that the Fed would slow its roll on interest rate hikes sooner rather than later, and that was a good enough reason to creep back into the stock market. But now that we kind of know what the Fed's likely to do for the next two meetings, bad news in the economy is being met with mounting fears about a recession or a long economic slog over the next several months. That could all change this week, depending on what the Fed does and says, of course. But as long-term investors, we have to ask ourselves this question. What happens when the Fed actually stops hiking rates and we're faced with relatively high interest rates and slowing growth? What is the next catalyst for big returns in the equity market? Number two, big oil is racking up big profits. Chevron blew the roof off the house last week, reporting a record profit of $35.5 billion for 2022 on revenue of $246 billion. It announced a $75 billion stock buyback plan and dividend increase. One of the largest buybacks in history, by the way. Apple has the biggest at $85 billion. Still, the five biggest oil companies in the world, not including Saudi Aramco, earned a combined $190 billion last year in profits amid sky-high oil prices for the first half of the year and $5 a gallon gasoline. As you can imagine, there is outcry from activists and some politicians about these record profits and buybacks and demands for a windfall tax like the one the UK put on its oil companies. But don't expect that to happen on these shores. The oil lobby is among the most powerful on the planet, and these oil companies respond to their shareholders. And guess who those shareholders are? You, if you invest in mutual funds or if you invest in Berkshire Hathaway, which is the largest shareholder in companies like Chevron and Occidental Petroleum. You can always vote with your money if you don't like their practices or their profits. And number three, and you, how are you feeling? Well, call it the January effect or the realization that interest rate hikes may slow or there's a growing sense that inflation may truly be easing or maybe it's all of the above, but our readers and listeners are a little less scared than they were in early December. According to Investopedia's latest reader sentiment survey, nearly half of respondents say they are playing it safe still with their portfolios, but expectations for better returns in the stock market over the next six months, they've ticked higher. That said, nearly one-third of respondents expect the S&P 500 to fall at least 5% over the next six months, while only 16% expect it to trade higher, and 11% they expect it to be flat. Only one in five respondents said they're investing more in the stock market these days, while 31% are investing less because, well, they think stocks have further to fall. 47% said they're continuing to play it safe by buying CDs and similar products, while only 11% are taking on more risk. Those are the promiscuous ones. While everyone may still feel a little cautious, your list of worries has changed over the past few months as inflation has subsided and the Federal Reserve has tempered its rate hiking plans. While 66% of respondents say they are still worried about a recession over the next 12 months, they are less worried about it now than they were in early December. Somebody find Axel Rose because all you want is just a little patience until you're ready to be aggressive to buy stocks again, especially with certificates of deposit looking so ripe. With the yield on some CDs greater than 4% at some banks, investors finally have a reasonable alternative to straight cash or a risky stock market. As for those investors who are stock-centric, well, 49% of you say you're waiting it out, while 41% say you're buying the dip. 19% of you say you're selling stocks and taking profits, while only 14% say you're selling stocks and taking losses. And we always like to know the answer to this question. If you had an extra 10 grand, what would you do with it? 
18% said they would buy individual stocks if they had that extra 10 Gs. That trumps cash savings, which was the number one choice in early December. And we also asked this question, how much money do you think you'd need to retire if you stopped working at the age of 65? Well, 60% of you said anywhere from $1 million to $3 million would be enough. 4% said a range of $5 million to $10 million would be more like it. And 9% said they would be able to retire with less than $1 million. We'll link to the write-up for the results. And thanks again to all of you who took the time to take it. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And this will be a whopper of a week. We're going to be getting earnings reports from some of the biggest, most widely held companies in the world, including Apple, Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, ExxonMobil, Pfizer, McDonald's, UPS, Caterpillar, AMD, Eli Lilly, Merck, Starbucks, and automakers like Ford and General Motors, just to name a few. Incidentally, many of these are among your favorite stocks, according to our survey. And a lot of them, especially big tech companies, are facing major headwinds. Meta, aka Facebook, for its part, is expected to report a 38% plunge in earnings, driven lower by an advertising slowdown and its ongoing burn building out the metaverse. Shares of Meta are down close to 50% in the past year, but in the past three months, they've rebounded 53%. Amazon's earnings are expected to tumble 83% as falling e-commerce sales weigh on profitability. Shares are down 30% in the past year, but up 25% in the past month. Do investors believe the worst is over for these mega cap tech stocks? We're going to find out this week. The U.S. labor market will be in the spotlight all week. On Wednesday, we're going to get the Labor Department's Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey. That's the JOLTS report for December. It tracks openings, hires, quits, and separations every month. Payroll provider ADP will also release the National Employment Report, tracking growth in the private sector through January. And then the big one, the non-farm payrolls report on Friday. That's the big January jobs report. Economists project the U.S. economy added about 185,000 jobs in January. That's coming down from a gain of 223,000 in December and the slowest job growth since a loss of 306,000 jobs in December of 2020. The unemployment rate is projected to tick slightly higher, up to 3.6%, up from 3.5%, which matches the pre-pandemic rate. But all investors are going to be tuned into the Fed's decision on interest rates coming up this Wednesday afternoon. The decision to raise interest rates by a quarter of a percent seems to be a foregone conclusion, according to the CME's Fed tracker and the Fed's dot plot. But words matter, and every word in the FOMC statement will be scrutinized, analyzed, diced up, and deep fried in order to figure out the central bank's next moves. Has inflation receded enough for the Fed to keep slowing the size of those rate hikes? Is it done for now? The latest Personal Consumption's Expenditures Index, which dropped last week, came in at 5% annualized, lower than the 5.5% the prior month and at a 15-month low. The Fed prefers to look at the PCE index rather than the CPI because it tracks the economy more broadly, and the Fed would like to see that number closer to 2%. But does that mean it's going to take more rate hikes to get there? We'll find out. The European Central Bank and the Bank of England will also hold policy meetings this week. ECB policymakers are expected to raise interest rates by 50 basis points or half a percent in their ongoing effort to tame record high inflation in the eurozone, which hit a peak of 10.6% in October. Bank of England officials are also expected to hike rates by 50 basis points or half a percent as the United Kingdom grapples with an economic slowdown and the highest inflation rate in over 40 years. In the pantheon of great investors and modern-day thinkers, you'll find Ray Dalio's statue along the top tier. His more than five-decade journey through financial markets and economic cycles has produced some of the best returns in history through Bridgewater Associates, the hedge fund he founded, and where he is the chief investment officer. But the returns are only part of what makes Ray Dalio a legend in our industry. 
He's a giver, not just a maker, not just a taker. And he's an educator who has been documenting his process and his principles nearly his entire career. The result, as many of you know and many of you have read, are some terrific books that need to be in every investor's library and in anybody's library who wants to get better at what they do. Principles, principles for success, principles for dealing with the changing world order, principles for navigating debt crises, and now, principles, your guided journal. Oh, and oh yeah, principles, the animated series on YouTube, the TED Talks, and on and on and on. Ray Dalio can't stop, he won't stop, but he's stopping by the Investopedia Express this week. And we're delighted to have him back on the show. Welcome, Ray. So good to see you. So good to see you. I love this show and I love your audience. Let's talk about this through line. You've boiled your life's work and philosophy into this step-by-step process for anyone to follow. It's a recipe, I like to call it, for self-improvement and actualization. But what brought you to that from where you began with principles? When I started investing, I would think about how I would make decisions. And then I started to write down my criteria. And then I realized that if I specified them very clearly in equations, that I could go back test them and see how they would have performed and learn. And I learned a great deal from that. And then I found that in running my company, you know, I started it and built it, that I could do the same thing for the principles of how we would operate as a group. And then I found that I could do the same thing for all aspects of life. And I found that when I did those things, it brought me into a deeper way of thinking because almost everything happens over and over again. And all decision-making that we're making, all decisions, are based on criteria that are in our heads. And so I did that with every aspect of life. And a lot of that, I systemized the decision-making in terms of these equations so that the computer could help me and help Bridgewater in making those decisions. I think that in my life, there were two big things that helped me enormously. One of those is meditation that helped to give me the equanimity and the ability to see things above myself and with that calmness that had a big effect. And then writing down these principles, which are essentially the criteria for making decisions, the recipe, so to speak. And that made me think in a better way, made me more systematic, made me communicate better to those I was operating with. So that was the background of all these principles. I love the yin yang of that because there is a systemization as you just described it, you wrote it down, then you put it into a computer, you organized it, But on the other hand, the flip side of that, the yang is your meditation, which is that inner looking, that inner self and trying to get a sense of who you are and who you really are beyond the noise. And those two things really helped balance this out for you, didn't they? Yes. But I want to emphasize that one could do either one. And we're now talking about the writing of principles down. And I really want to emphasize to your audience that power. And that's why I created the journal. You know, I put out the books that you mentioned and the videos to accompany the books. And many people have found them very, very impactful. And they've asked me to help them write down their principles because it's not just my principles, it's anyone's principles to have the experience. And so that's why I created the journal to do that. So useful. And what you're really doing in the journal is helping people identify the strengths, the weaknesses, the motivations, the preferences, what drives us, how to use your five-step process to achieve those goals. 
how to be both assertive and open-minded at the same time, very hard to do, but necessary in any business and how to maximize learning from your mistakes. And we all make mistakes. You've had a very long career and the returns are there, but you've told me many times about some of those mistakes. Those steps are so important. Roughly speaking, I think about a third of the time I make mistakes. And particularly in the markets, you know, it's a zero-sum game. So to know how to diversify well is an important principle. If you make decisions and two-thirds of the time, roughly speaking, you're right, but you have a number of bets that are uncorrelated. It's like the casino and makes the money all the time, you know, you get the edge. So those are have to do with the principles. I think people are not practical enough in their decision-making often. They think that just because they have an opinion, that the opinion is right. And I think the market teaches you both humility and the practicality of decision-making because it gives you a scorecard, an objective scorecard. Like I can measure my performance to three decimal places. You get feedback, you get humility and you get feedback. So that's been important to me. And the writing down and the back testing gives you perspective, which also has helped you anticipate crises, has helped you anticipate economic cycles. And again, anyone can do this. You just took the time to do this. But how important is that you were able to realize that these cycles repeat over and over. And you put it in your books. I've read them all. But you also notice them as we go cycle to cycle, even in the cycles we've been in over the past several years. Basically, the way I look at everything is everything is another one of those and which one of those is it? Like looking at a species, you say, yo, I'm coming up to a species. Which one of those is it? And how do I deal with that species? And if you look at history, you can practically find any of these species repeating over and over again. It's like a doctor seeing many cases. If you go through many, many cases, then you get a perspective. What's the typical case like? How do they differ? And what are the mechanics of the cause-effect relationships? This all brings us to kind of where we are today, cycles repeating over and over again. When we spoke last, you were talking about this cycle being very similar to cycles we'd seen in the past. But how do we take now the work that you've done and apply it to how we think today, both professionally and also as investors? In my books, I try to explain my understanding of the mechanics, the cause-effect relationships. So, for example, there's a short-term debt cycle and a long-term debt cycle. What I mean by a short-term debt cycle, you know we're in one of those. We're always in one of those. That's when the economy is in recession or weak, inflation is low, then central banks produce money and credit. That causes the pickup. It carries it until inflation rises and the economy is hot, bubbles occur, then they tighten money, and then that changes interest rates, which changes asset prices and so on. And then you go through that. So that's a cycle. They've lasted an average of seven years, plus or minus. You have to know where you are in that cycle. We know where we are in that cycle. You know, have to know how they work and so on. And that affects what your expectation of what markets and pricing will do. But then these cycles also add up over a period of time to create a big cycle. And there are big cycles, a number of those. The big cycle, for example, is over a period of time, debt assets and debt liabilities rise relative to incomes. And that rises to a point of being a limitation. And as that happens, you have to satisfy 
the debtor and the creditor. So you have to have interest rates that are high enough that the creditor gets a good real return. The debtor gets not too high interest rates that they go broke. There's a balancing act and so on. So I won't digress into all of that. But in these books, there are principles of debt cycles. There are principles of markets, but there are principles of life. There are principles of work. And so they're kind of all explicitly laid out. And what I like about them is that by laying them out, we can discuss them. Does the machine really work that way? How does the machine work? Talk about what happened in the 1930s and then the 1940s, the 1970s and the 1980s. Seems like forever ago for a lot of folks and folks who listen, this might not even have been around for that, but this is kind of a repeat cycle, even though we had a global pandemic right in the middle of it, which may have exasperated or amplified what's going on within the cycle. How similar are we to those eras? More similar than to the eras that we've lived in. So one of the things that I learned is that many of the things that surprised me in my life were things that never happened in my lifetime, but happened many times before. First time it happened. I'm clerking on the floor of New York Stock Exchange. I just had graduated college and I was about to go to graduate school. It's August 1971. And I'm watching things very, very closely. And then President Nixon on August 15th, 1971, gets on the television and tells the world, although he didn't phrase it this way, he tells the world that the money that they were expecting to get, gold, he's not going to give them for the paper that he put out, the claims on money, so the U.S. defaulted. And wow, I think, wow, what a crisis. And I walked down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and I thought the stock market was going to go down a lot, and it went up a lot, and I didn't understand why. And then I studied history, and I found out that the exact same thing happened on March 5th, 1933, when Roosevelt on a radio said the same thing to the public. And what happened is the mechanics of producing a lot of liquidity, alleviating the debt crisis, blah, 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 sent the markets up then. And I studied then those cases in history, and I came to understand them. And similarly, in 2008, we understood the world financial crisis because the same thing that happened in the Great Depression happened. In other words, interest rates hit zero both times. 1933, interest rates hit zero. 2008, for the first time since 1933, they hit zero. So you have a debt crisis and zero interest rates. What does the central bank do and how do they deal with it? It was the same. So the answer to your question is that I've seen over and over again that things that happened many times before didn't happen in my lifetime. And so I saw five this time. There are five big forces that I want to emphasize. Three that caught my attention and have prompted me to do the study, which I converted into the book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order. The three were the amounts of debt and money creation debt creation and the monetization of debt by central banks, one has to go back to the, that 1930 to 45 period. And that also, by the way, is reflected in wealth gaps and so on. The second influence is the internal conflict influence. 
if you look at politics, wealth gaps, and how many, many measures, you will not see it in our lifetimes. We have never experienced those that we're experiencing now in the way of internal conflicts caused by the same factors that caused them through history. So I saw that I needed to go back in history. And then also the international great power conflict between two competing powers, not in our lifetime. Was there ever a competing power? The Soviet Union, for example, was a military power, but it was not an economic power. And so you have this international conflict and that's repeated. And so in order to think about currencies like a reserve currency or a country, I needed to go back and see what caused them to rise and decline. So I needed to go through those patterns of history, which prompted me to go back the 500 years, because let's say a rise and decline of a reserve currency or an empire, that happens over like 150 years. So you've got to watch that. That prompted me to do it. Everything happens over and over again, like pandemics. I also learned that acts of nature, floods, droughts, and pandemics, They come along like the 100-year flood, and they have actually had more impact than droughts and wars. They've killed more people. They've toppled more civilizations, and I didn't really know that until I studied history. And then number five of the things that I think are very important in repeating is man's inventiveness of ways of doing things and technology that shapes it. And so those relationships I see repeat over and over again. So it's like a doctor watching the same thing happen over and over again. It gives me the perspective that I need. And this isn't theoretical. This is for dealing with what's going on right now. So for investors who are thinking, I still have to put money to work for the next 20, 25 years. I'm thinking that right now. But folks are thinking long-term horizon. You are right in the thick of it, making investment decisions every day. But if you had to think about putting money to work for the next 25 What are you thinking about as an investor, as a retail investor who has access to the types of products me and my listeners do? Well, the most important things are you're not probably going to be able to compete in this market timing game because we put hundreds of billions of dollars in it and it's a tough game. I think it's more difficult than competing in the Olympics. You wouldn't say I'm going to compete in the Olympics, but this is a zero-sum game, and you've got to compete in that. And so the average guy can't compete there. The second thing is that the key is your return to risk ratio. Risk and diversification are of paramount importance. And the fact is that if you diversify well, you can reduce your risk by 70 or 80% if you take uncorrelated good things. And what happens is if you had the right diversified portfolio, that means you can increase your return to risk ratio by a factor of five by knowing how to diversify without reducing your returns. So finding good uncorrelated return streams is, I think, of paramount importance. And then there are different kinds of risks. So I want to emphasize diversification. I would also say that as a generalization, we have a long-term debt cycle that's transpiring. In other words, these debts get built up. By the way, this is particularly true in the old reserve currency countries, the United States, Europe, and Japan. They're the older empires. And so that means that debt assets 
are probably not going to be as much good investment unless your element of market, how you market time over that particular period, because one man's debt is another man's assets. And if you have a lot of debt, and right now we're in an environment in which there's a desire and need to spend on so many different things without restraint, because no longer in this fiat monetary system do we think how much money do we have to spend and how do we prioritize that spending? We just say we have to spend it and then we are going to get it either by taxing or printing money. So in that kind of an environment, the relief comes from having low real interest rates. And so I think you have to move beyond that. And you have to think of also globally diversifying. So globally diversifying. If I was to make a broad generalization, I would say that there are three things that I look at when I look at countries and I look at companies or when I look at people's finances. The first is, are they earning more than they are spending? What does their income statement and balance sheet look like? because they're safer if they do, if they've got good finances. If they're dependent on borrowing and so on, and they're building it up, something's going to happen down there. The second thing I look at is how are people with each other? Are they civil with each other? Is the place fighting with each other and almost becoming dysfunctional? Or is the place running well, they're rowing in the same direction and the like, that civility between them. Good finances, people working to be productive and being productive. And the third is, are they at risk of a war? So those are the things that I sort of pay attention to in my investing and I would recommend. Great points and fundamentals and principles. You put those two together, you have a pretty strong foundation for investing and for anything you want to do in your life. Let me ask you this. Let's do some fantasy land work. If you were just graduating college today, Ray, what career would the young Ray Dalio be pursuing? I have a passion for, and I'd really recommend this, global macro investing for a couple of reasons. Everything's connected. To make the comparison of what's going on one place and another place gives you the perspective of the world. And so that perspective, I think, is invaluable as you're looking at it. The other thing that I like about it is that it's a practical education. You won't get as practical an education in anything that doesn't give you such a great feedback loop. And it also means that you can be in or out of anything. I can be in any industry. I could be in any place, in any type of thing. I'm in all the liquid markets and some illiquid markets too. So I have the choices of those rather than having a narrow perspective. So for those reasons, I think it's really a great area. I think other areas quite often come and go through my history. You also have to know your nature. That's one of the reasons in the principles, there are five parts of that book. And in the first part, it's processes to know yourself, know your nature, because your nature should determine your path. What do you want? What brings you happiness, satisfaction? It's like sampling and getting the pull. You need the pull. So I would recommend make your work and your passion the same thing. And don't forget about the money part because the money part is important. You know, it gives you the freedom, self-sufficiency, the ability to do those things. Sounds to me like you would be sitting in the very same place you're sitting right now if you had to make the choice 60 plus years ago. Great call on your part. Well, we call you a legendary investor. 
Give me a couple of investors who you really admire, alive or dead, with us or not, who inspired you, who really made you look up to them. I remember when I was a kid reading the book written by Jesse Livermore, who was a short seller in the 30s and so on, the 20s and 30s. And then I would say, you deal with the fundamentals of Graham and Dodd, and I'm a great admirer of Warren Buffett and his partner. I'm an admirer of Paul Jones. I think Ken Griffith has just exceeded, I'm told, our all-time record of the most money made for clients. And by the way, I congratulate him because that's a great accomplishment and it's a great accomplishment for the investors and so on. You need more of that. And then Millennium Partners is fabulous. I mean, has been. There are many ways to invest. And so I think Paul Singer is a great investor. Fascinating conversations with all of those people. Yeah, it sounds like an all-star team for the ages. All right. You know we're a site that was built on our financial terms. I've heard a few great financial terms from you today in just our, this conversation and in all the conversations we've had over the years. What's your very favorite investing term and why? Well, I guess it would be diversification. I think it's, as I said, the power is greater than the power of a great decision. And I just want to emphasize this point. Everybody pays attention to returns and they don't pay attention to risks as much. And that's one of the reasons we've been successful because think of it this way. If you lose 50%, you've got to make 100% to get back. I think the most we've ever lost in a year was 13%. And that was the COVID year because the controlling of risk with diversification and the right balancing and perhaps some leverage is something that produces the best results. And maybe the term is also financial engineering. But when I mean financial engineering, I don't mean go into an optimizer and throw things around and see what spits out. I mean, understanding the parts and how to put those parts together. I think that those would be my buzzwords, diversification and financial engineering, I think. Those are incredible. And folks, if you haven't seen it yet, Ray's explanation of his all-weather portfolio on Investopedia's YouTube channel really speaks to this, one of the most popular videos we have out there. Ray Dalio, best-selling author, the founder and chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates, the author of the Principles series, and now Principles, your guided journal, philanthropist, and great friend to Investopedia. Thanks so much for coming back on the Investopedia Express. Such an honor to speak with you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Jessica or two, who sent us this email. Hello, Investopedia Express team. In light of all the talk about chat GPT and the rise of AI systems across the world in many sectors from medical manufacturing to finance, I thought a good term this week to include would be natural language processing or NLP. Natural language processing is a subfield of artificial intelligence that deals with the interaction between computers and human languages, and it is used to analyze understanding human language in a text or speech form. NLP is used in various financial applications such as sentiment analysis, risk management, and financial news analysis. The technology behind ChatGDP is based on NLP, natural language processing, which can be used to understand and generate human language. As an interesting aside, Cynthia writes, this previous paragraph was actually generated by ChatGPT. Hope this is a good one for you. 
It is a good one, Jessica. Thanks for your suggestion. And ChatGPT is a hot topic these days. For those that don't know, ChatGPT is a free chatbot released in November 2022 by an AI research company called OpenAI. Just recently, Microsoft put a $10 billion investment into ChatGPT, which tells you that the most powerful companies in the world want to harness this technology. But for all you students out there, don't trust ChatGPT to get you through your finals unless you're okay with mediocrity. When professors at the University of Minnesota Law School asked ChatGPT to take their exams, it earned on average a C plus. It did a little bit better in business school, earning a B to B minus at the Wharton School of Business. We're gonna let the late, great Kobe Bean Bryant take us out this week. Famous for his tenacity, his relentlessness, and his will to win, Kobe's magic weapon, just like Ray Dalio discussed, was to remain calm no matter what. Calm because he put in the work and because he trusted himself. Be calm, just be calm. You know, sometimes we tend to overhype situations. Our imagination gets in our own way. And for me, I was, was able to detach myself from it to allow the work that I've put in that practice to manifest itself during the game. Right, so there's no need to panic. I've had games that I've won, games that I've lost at the buzzer, you show up the next morning and you get to practice again anyway. Gone too soon, but never forgotten. Mamba mentality lives on. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and a very special thanks to Ray Dalio for coming back aboard the Express. We are always honored to get a chance to speak with him, and we always walk away a lot smarter. We're going to link to all of Ray's books and videos in the show notes and all the reports we cited on this week's program. Let's keep calm this week and be ready for everything coming our way. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.